This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Guys, I love today's guest, and I'm sure you all do too. Today we have Karamo Brown. He is just the sweetest. We talked about everything from his childhood, the curry goat he used to bring for school lunch, his passion for helping people, the queer eye guys, his sons, and so much more. And if you haven't read his memoir, you must. And his new children's book, Hello? He is an author. The children's book is called I Am Perfectly Designed, and it comes out this fall. Enjoy. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Of course. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't miss this for the world. I'm so happy to see you. Every time I see you, I feel uplifted. Thank you. Yeah. Same way about you. Well, thanks. We have that sort of personality where it's like, we have good days, we have bad days, but we try to always live in the better space. Yes. And I see that from you all the time. Oh, thanks. Every once in a while... I'll joke with myself and be like, I'm feeling a little ugly right now and I'm just going to have to come right back. Like I, I got to walk it back. You know what I mean? Amen. Yeah. That's my true. my my higher self, my more adult self, whatever it is, I got to bring it back in the room. I will say though, it was so much fun when you and I met because obviously, I mean, I feel like it must be such a wild thing, this ride that you've been on yes. because Queer Eye has been this beautiful, explosive force for good. And I remember how special I felt when we met and connected and talked about how nice it was to meet in person and how fun it is to follow each other. And I'm like, you probably have that with every person. Like every person runs up to you and is like, you're amazing. (laughs) And I have so much fun on your journey following along. And it, it must be crazy it it is well first of all you were the first celebrity no you you were 
that hit us all up. Uh, it, we all kind of debate between you and Chrissy Teigen. One of you were like the very first to be I like, mean, we support we you and love excellent you. Excellent taste. Yes, yes. And I was like, we. It was, it was like such an amazing moment for us to wake up oh. and be like, <gasps> what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean this person is following us? Like. That no is what we are. We way. all went geeked out. Okay. I know we shouldn't be saying that because we should be cool, but I'm no, letting no. you know we I geeked out for months. I have absolutely no ability to be yes. cool, like literally to the point that people will be like, Sophia, you cannot be like this at a Golden yes. Clothes party. You are a famous person. You can't react <laughs> right. this way to famous people. I'm like, I'm not famous. Like, they're famous. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it makes me, I don't know how to do it. Yes. Because like, I think like my inner nine year old is always in <laughs> oh. disbelief that I'm in the room. Yeah. And I had that. When I realized we were all following each other, I yeah. was like, shut up. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know they were going to we, follow me we, back. I'm like, we ah. were doing that. So, yeah. so, but it was very special. And when people come up to me or any of us, I, I want to speak for the guys on this. I say something that I think is true is that at some point in all of our lives, we felt unseen. Like whether it's in elementary school, middle school, high school, at the job you're at now, in the relationship you're with, with your mom, wherever, you just feel like, People don't get me. They don't see mm-hmm. me. They don't appreciate me like I want them to. And the thing about this piece of my journey is that I feel seen constantly. So when people come up to me, I promise you, anyone will tell you, I will stop and talk with anyone and give them a hug. Because I'm like, you're seeing me and I'm going to see you back. And so we all try to do that. And I think wow. it's just a beautiful thing. So I just love this little piece of my journey right now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That makes me so happy for you. Yeah. And weirdly, I... I just realized something because people will ask, you know, how, how do you feel about it? And how do you feel when people recognize you or stop you and want to talk? And the only way I've ever been able to articulate it before is that I think it's about the energy I'm receiving because mm-hmm. sometimes it's lovely and sometimes it's scary. Of course. But you just illuminated something more deeply for me because you are being seen on this show and in this platform and in this very self-actualized, beautiful phase in your life and, and you're doing this work that you're so proud of. And and so they're seeing everything that brings you joy. Yeah. And I ju- literally in this moment when you said that, I went, oh, I think when I've been really uncomfortable in interactions with strangers, it's it's because they see something that isn't me. Mm-hmm. Or differently than my experience. Your experience, yeah. You know, I, I've had the experience of of having a, a really terrible time of something, and when someone is like, "Oh my god, I love that thing," I'm like, "Oh, you love the? That's cool. I'm really glad you like it." But inside, I'm like, "I'm suffering from that. It was yeah, so exactly. bad." And and oh my god, what a gift to be doing something, yeah. to be in your purpose so much that exchanging on it feels like a recharge. Yes. Yeah. So that's what it is. But, you know, you just brought something else that I I love because I'm all about solution-based. The guys joke with me because I'm always the one on the show that gets homework. It's just part of, like, my career before this. And then I just – and a dad, I just love giving people solutions that they can really take. And you just said something that I think people listening should gain from this is – when they feel uncomfortable in that moment, it's because people are not seeing them mm. for it's something that makes them uncomfortable. So, of course, I'm uncomfortable because you're seeing something that I didn't like about me or I didn't experience in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I think we should understand that we have the power, especially you having these fan interactions to stop in that moment and to set a clear boundary with them, which is hard for people to do of saying, so I know you are acknowledging that moment, but I'm still working through that moment. So I would love to talk to you about something else. Oh, I've done yeah. that before with people. And 
they're not turned off. They don't think I'm being rude because they're now feeling more involved and more respected because I'm not saying, oh, I got to go because I don't want to hear whatever you're talking about. I'm stopping them and saying, before this makes me uncomfortable and before now this interaction, the energy we're exchanging gets weird, can I set a new boundary with you of maybe not discussing that while I am on a journey of figuring out how that affects me? Wow. More people need to know they have the power to do that. But wow. that's what you just said. You know, it's like someone makes you uncomfortable by saying, oh, my gosh, I love you in this. And you're like, <laughs> I didn't like that. And <laughs> if you just stop them in that moment, switch yeah. it. Anyway. That's, that's beautiful. It. Well, and and really, you know, it may not be everyone's experience that they're talking about a, you know, a piece of entertainment that they made or, or a certain job that they did. But if there's something in your life that is a trigger for something confusing or painful or or that, to your point, you're working through, you can just say, I don't actually want to. I don't want to trigger that. I don't want to yeah. open that door. Let's go. Let's open this door over this here instead. Over here. This is fun. Yeah. Yeah. So easy to do with people. But we're not taught that. Especially mm-hmm. women in our country are not taught that it's okay to set boundaries. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Can I tell you a really quick story? Please. Okay, so. I love a story. I know. It's not, it's not really like a fun story or anything. But me and one of my best friends almost had a blowout fight like two weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. And we have been best friends since we were 16. So he has this little girl, his daughter. She's three now. And some family members had come in town. And I'm sitting there watching this interaction. I can't not but speak up, especially when I see people being forced to do things that are not okay. Mm-hmm. And we also try to have really transparent conversations so that they can grow as people. I can grow as people. We learn from each other. Anyway, these family members came in town. And they were like, go hug them. And literally, mm-hmm. you already know where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. The daughter was like clinching my best friend and his mom, like saying, no, no. And they were like, this is your aunt. You have to hug them. And so I like tapped them on the shoulder and was like, I just want to whisper, do you hear what your daughter's saying to you? She's saying, my boundary is I don't want to hug these people. And you're telling her her boundaries don't matter because they are quote unquote family members. Mm. That's a stranger to her. And you're telling her no. And they were like, no, no, this is family. This is how you do it. And I was like, and so I started getting upset because she's crying. I was kind of feeling like empathic and feeling her pain. And I'm like, she's telling you she doesn't want it. Yes. And And what that's really about is consent with your body. Consent with your body, boundaries, all these things. And so the reason I brought that up is because we were just like, we had a little bit of that conversation. But I just thought like how we start teaching people that at such young ages. Mm -hmm. So when you're 25 or 16 or 45, you're confused about when it's proper to set boundaries. Because Mm -hmm. when you started to, people told you, no, you have to go along with this. That's a family member or that's a boss or that's a teacher. And it's like, no. No. And so I literally put my hand out and said, do you want to come with Uncle Momo? That's what she calls me. And she grabbed my hand and I was like, let's go take a walk. And of course, they were kind of looking at me and they we argued later because I was like, I'm not going to allow you to take away her power at such a young age. And they were like, that's not what we're doing. And then we kind of got to it. But anyway, that's just a note for everyone else. Like if you see that happening to somebody, stop it, please. Yes. And I also think to your point, if we don't learn that we have that kind of autonomy at a young age, we learn it by being harmed at an older age. And then we have to do the work to fix the harm. And I know that I went through that. I'm seeing on your face that you went through that. 
And even for me, I, I've had interactions like we we just did this amazing thing. One of the shows I used to work on, we did this huge fan convention and we did it to benefit two great charities and it was awesome. But a request that I made, and this was me learning how to advocate for myself and for my little girl who mm-hmm. was told that her boundaries didn't matter. Yeah. I said, I'm really excited to see everyone here, but I need you all to do something for me. I'm obviously very familiar to you because we did nine years of a show together. Mm-hmm. But as lovely as you seem, y'all are strangers to me. Yep. So when we have our one-on-one interactions, if you would like to touch or hug me, please ask first. Mm. And it's mm. like, it, it, I just need to be able to say yes. Yes. Or could we shake hands yes. instead? Yeah. Or I, I need to have a little agency yeah. over my personhood. Yes. And it was so special because there was a girl who then came up to me and said, you know, I let people hug me all the time and I didn't realize until today I don't have to. Amen. And we both just started crying and I was like, oh my God, we're not moving on. But it was like this moment. And I, I realize over and over again, you hear stories, you witness things, and you just see that so many of us haven't been taught that our needs are as valuable or valid mm-hmm. as anyone else's. Yep, agreed. And so we have some unlearning to do. Yeah, a lot of unlearning. But I love the way you say stated that. Mm-hmm. Like, kudos to you for having the courage to say in front of people and giving it to the audience as a digestible way of saying, yeah, we had a relationship through this show, and you know me, but I'm a stranger, you're a stranger mm-hmm. to me. I think that was such a clear way that somebody is not going to be like, oh, she's being a rude, or she's, because that's a fear of all of ours, that people are going to now yeah. perceive a certain way. Oh, it's awful. And when you explain it in such a clear, articulate way like that, people get it, and they're like, oh, yeah. And then you had that beautiful moment, so. I mean, amazing. and I've had, I've learned that, because, like, I certainly haven't always had the language, and I've left certain experiences feeling super freaked out and weird and I'm sure having made people feel super weird and that's obviously never the intention but it's it's a learning process and nobody gives us a manual for this yeah but I'm curious you obviously your whole career and your work and your hosting and your social work and your advocacy has led you to this place where Mm -hmm. you just like my friend Lovey always says, like, you're just dropping gems. Like, you just are like, <laughs> boom, and there's another one, and there's another Like, you get a lesson, and you get a lesson, and you get a lesson. It's so good. But I, I'm so curious, like, how did this start? Were you were you a really wise child? No. no. <laughs> oh, I love a journey. Tell me everything. So this is the beauty of my career that I'm so thankful for. And especially, I think... Some of the like interactions that I've been having a lot with people, they have seen my journey because when I was 22, fresh out of college, I got cast on MTV's Real World, which is a big reality show for anybody overseas that's listening to this here in the States. Where were you living? I was here in Los Angeles. And then where did you have to go for Real World? Philadelphia. Oh, Philly. And so the reason, way I got on um, Real World was not like, I want to be on a reality show. I was actually protesting MTV. Because there was a show on that I wanted to get off the air. And being straight out of college, I was like, this is how you get it off. You create a PowerPoint and then you protest. And so that was like my mindset. So I got – I was there was a show called Pimp My Ride. Do you remember that show? Yeah. With Exhibit. So the, organ, the nonprofit I was working for, there was kids that was leaving my program and going and stealing from cars to make their cars better. And so this Whoa. is what they were watching every day. And so they thought, oh, if my car doesn't have it, I'll go do this. So anyway, I protested. 
And this executive came out and was like, who organized this? And I was like, me, B. Like, I'm literally cussing. Like, me, I organized this. And how dare you, you irresponsible B word. I'm just like going off. I'm like, now I know. But I was like, if you ever did try to protest, cussing at the person who you're trying to get to get on your side is not going to help. But she was like, you just alone did this? And I was like, no, it was me and my boyfriend. And she was like, angry, black, gay. Ding, 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 ding. She's like, can you come back tomorrow? And I thought like, I thought the world. I thought like everything was going to happen. I was going to go change MTV. I was going to get on. They came back the next day and they were like, you want to be on Real World? And of course, I'm 22 and my ego is in full flame. And I was like, hell yeah. Quit the job the next day. Never seen those kids ever again. So it was like shows like that's not something I would do now. But young me. And then I went on Real World and was a train wreck. Cussing, drinking, drunk, having sex. Like it was a train wreck. And then after the Real World was doing club appearances, train wreck, doing tons of cocaine, train wreck, drinking, train wreck, being in an abusive relationship where I was the abuser because that's how I learned from my home. And so... How do you mean? Can we... Yeah, we can dive. Dive into that? Yeah. So I grew up in a house. Um, well, first, let me just finish this. Yeah, okay. I, that's the reason why I'm so happy about like what people see me now is because they know he. I wasn't always... Even though I had the training, I'd finished school. I still didn't know how to apply it to my life. And I didn't have any guides and mentors. Mm. And so when they hear me now, they can see the full growth of yes. like, oh, if I'm a train wreck right now listening to this, so was he. And yes. now he's happy and healthy and doing well. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, Even on the extreme end of that kind of spectrum, one of the my favorite things I've ever heard a human say, Brian Stevenson, mm-hmm. who works to get people off of death row, he's you know, the, for That's anyone listening who doesn't know, please watch his TED Talk. He's the most incredible attorney, his justice projects. He's so amazing. And he talks about getting to know these people. And he says, you are so much more than the worst thing you've ever done. Oh, And it like, it, it it's like a needle right into the center of my heart because we live in this world that celebrates what success looks like, but not what it takes to get there. And, you know, even when to your point about what what women are told, successful women are celebrated, but if they talk about trauma they've been through, they're being drama queens. All that. Women who report are not being team players. Women, And it's like, and there are versions of that for all of us. And even for you at 22, finding your way as an activist and, and a person who knew you had this purpose, you got taken advantage of as ticking interesting boxes for a production. Exactly. You know, like to your point, black, mm-hmm. gay, fulfilling that that horrible stereotype mm-hmm. of like a young, angry black person, yep. which is such an unfair thing to have projected onto you. Why shouldn't you be angry for your community that's being negatively affected yep. by a team of people who aren't from there and who don't look like the people there and who aren't thinking about the people there? Rather than having that nurtured, somebody said, we can put him on TV and he'll be interesting. And exploit it. Yes. Oh, I know. Oh, uh, but it I love kills that. I'm me. putting that on a t-shirt. You're not the worst thing that ever happened to you. That is beautiful. Wow. It's so good. Yeah. But I'm happy because people have seen my growth and they get it, you know? Yeah. But you asked me before about the domestic violence. Yes. So I have a new book out called Karamo, My Journey of I know. Healing Purpose and Hope. It's um, so good. Dude, yeah. Just say all the way. We're not, don't do the trail off. I, I want like a loud and proud my announcement. My book is Karamo, My Journey of Embracing Purpose, Healing, and Hope. 
And in that book, I talk about domestic violence. And I talk about the fact that I grew up in a household where my father was actually abusive to my mother. And so I'm the only boy. I have all older sisters. And I, you know, I was never witnessed him hitting her because they would always protect me because I was the youngest, but I would hear it and I would see the aftermath the next day. So I'd see Mm. the bruises on my mom. I would see her trying to cover up stuff. And so I knew it was happening, but everyone tried to pretend like it wasn't happening. Mm. And then even though I knew it was happening, I would have these conversations with my father where he would say, when you get with a woman, you never hit a woman. So it was like these mixed messages because I'm like, I know you're hitting mom. But then also I was like, you're right. You never hit a woman. You don't hit anyone. Now I know. But then all I was Mm. taught is that you don't hit a woman. So what happens to a little boy who knows that they're gay, who's only being told you don't hit women, yet you're going to be in intimate relationships with other men? And culturally, we tell little boys, two men fighting is just boys being boys. It's it's how they rough it out. And so Mm. immediately when I got out of the real world and I had all now all of these things bubbling at the top and no one helping me how to figure out all the stuff that I just experienced on the show prior to the show everything was at bubbling it was about to explode and here I'm in this relationship and the first time I got angry I did what my saw I I did what my father did I can't say what I witnessed him do but I did what I knew he did which was hit my mother to get his anger out mm. and every time I hit my boyfriend at the time I would say you're not a girl you're a man, so if you want to fight back, fight back. Because that's what society had said. Two men can fight. You're, that's, that's what we're able to do. You know, mm-hmm. like if you hit a girl, she's fragile, you're, that's a problem. But two men fighting, go fight, you know? And it took me a long time, almost until I became a father, to stop being in abusive relationships where I was the abuser. And I remember there was a time where I felt really disgusting because I had just gotten to a fight with my boyfriend and he called the police and the police came to our apartment, Valley Village, California, if any of y'all ever from LA. And I so boldly sat outside of our apartment waiting for the police, literally taunting him, being like, I can't wait for these police to come here. And after they get here, I'm going to knock you out again. And he was like crying and i'm like i'm gonna hit you again for wasting my time with these police that's how horrible of a person i was and the police got there and they saw two guys and they were like oh this is just you're just you're just roommates work it out don't call us again for this and i literally went upstairs and i punched them again and i was like don't ever waste my goddamn time and it's i don't know what happened i walked in the room and i walked past the mirror and i looked at myself and i was like what you what did you just do? Police just came. That didn't scare you. And then you came back upstairs and hit him again to prove a point. Mm -hmm. And I literally ran out the house and I just was crying in my car, like as if I was a victim or something. Um, And I realized to a small degree, there was part of me that where I had to grow and I had to find stuff, but I was like, this is the worst. And that's when I started doing research about like domestic violence and how it affects you when you're in a house of that. And then I also started realizing that domestic violence in the LGBT community is the highest. Yes. Because it's not discussed. Law enforcement, paramedics, doctors, they're not trained on how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So just like those two male police, they saw two men. They were like, just handle this. Don't. If he would have been a woman, they would have drugged me away. A hundred percent. But since we were two men, we didn't. And I had to go on this journey of... First, apologizing to every single person I'd ever hit, which was really hard. It was like, 
Some of them didn't want to talk to me. I had to write notes just to say, I'm sorry. And now we're at a place where every single one of them has forgiven me. We've, we have relationships. Then I had to go back and talk to my mom about why mm. she stayed to figure out like, how can I start to heal the trauma from my childhood? And then I had to write my father a note because he and I weren't talking and saying, even though I didn't see you do this, it, it affected me. It hurt me. It hurt our family. And then I went to this sort of training of like how to be better and channel my emotions in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And these were the steps that I took that I encourage other people to take because domestic violence would have still been affecting my life today if I would not have stopped, acknowledged it, went back to my past and then got the support I needed. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. It's a mess. And it's, <laughs> it is, but it's so fascinating to me because the way we're imprinted as children oh yes and the way that our little brains you know our brains aren't developed like let's say as nine-year-olds that's what you're witnessing your brain is not developed enough to understand the layered complexity of an adult situation so your brain makes these irrational connections which cement in your little brain as truth and you don't even know that that's been the truth, the story that you've been telling. And, and so it makes sense to me, of course, not only were you cultured to hear like boys will be boys, but also you were told that in your most intimate partnership, you don't ever abuse someone, but then you also saw that abuse happening and that abuse was hidden, mm -hmm. but not really. It was also out in the open. Yeah but never discussed, so you didn't know how to process it. Yep. So of course, at home behind closed doors, you repeat it. Yep. And then when it's brought out in the open, you're like, nobody's going to care because nobody cared then when nobody it happened to then. you. Exactly. It's like yeah. the cycle of it mm -hmm. is obvious almost, yep. but so prevalent in so many places. And I think that the the disservice of this kind of gendered opinion on violence is so hard because I know at least in so many women in my community and, and straight relationships in my community, the number of us who've talked about, okay, well, of course I tolerated that bad behavior or that emotional abuse or that verbal mm -hmm. abuse. Cause when I was little and a boy would pull my hair or hit me, someone would say, that just means he likes you. And, oh my God, <gasps> that gets on my nerves. It kills me. Oh. That just means he likes you. Boys will be boys. You know, even even the way that women are told, like girls are catty and, and the way oh. that girls fight, to your point, when you yeah. see this, these sort of abusive tendencies in LGBT relationships, people who have been marginalized and abused themselves for who they are, turn that kind of marginalization onto the person closest to them. And that, I know that happens across any sort of gendered relationship, but it's no shock to me that people who are more harmed harm more until we learn how to break these cycles. And you, first of all, you doing it is miraculous and impressive. And you being so willing to talk about it so that other people don't feel ashamed, don't feel scared to ask for help, can can maybe have that moment in the mirror where they mm -hmm. go, oh my God, I need help. That's Thanks. Amazing. I mean, I, I, I try to use my story completely to always be honest about what I'm going through. Because the only goal I have in my mind and my intention is always 
I don't want you to go through it. I don't want you to have to deal with this. Like, I want you to be better. And if I can share my story to help you to be better, then great. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest about it and let's share it. And that's why I always try to give, I always tell people what solution I did. And I don't do it as a way of like, you do this. I'm like, if you're listening and you don't understand how to get out of this, let me tell you some steps that I took. Let me, because I think sometimes we miss that in our lives, especially and this is not against anyone who's a celebrity or who's a personality, but I think sometimes we get so caught up in just sharing the trauma that we forget that by sharing the trauma, we have to give them a solution so that someone mm. can truly figure it out. Because yeah. most people don't have the the access to things we have. So it's like they're listening to us to say, what do I do? Yes. And it's like, this might not work for you, but here's one little solution. Anyway, that's it. Do you think that you are so solutions oriented not only because you've lived it you obviously walk the walk but because of what you studied and because of your experience at nonprofits and in social work and and all of that 100% my experience of working in, in social services for 12 years you're trained to understand you have to figure out what step 1 2 3 4 is to create a mm-hmm. solution for the population you're working for can you give people listening like a, a little bit of a timeline so they can understand that background. Cause yeah. I'm sure there are some people who've seen you on TV who don't know that. Oh, hundred percent. Your that's history. Literally the reason I hated the term culture when we started queer eye, because right. I was like, I'm hired to fix the inside, but <laughs> the term culture doesn't make any sense to anyone. So they're like the first season, it was a little bit of a trigger for me. It was like, people would come up afterwards and they'd be like, what do you do? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to help the person to not go back and also to figure out why in 20 years you haven't cut your hair. Right. And they're like, oh, I understand that now. And, you know, as we've gotten through the different seasons, people are like, oh, I get it. But at yes. first people were like, culture, what does that mean? So working as a social worker, I'm MSW. I, the population I work with first was LGBT youth. And, you know, I worked in the foster care system. They were mm-hmm. kids who were being placed in different homes, were you know, trying to go up for adoption. And within that, you start to learn the trauma and helping them to work through their trauma. But then also, what is the best plan for this child so that they can have some assimilation of a life that is going to be best for them? Mm-hmm. And so you have to start figuring out simple things of like, who is the best family member that we can contact or what is the best foster home that we can put them in and how can you continue the services and what services they need. So it's Mm -hmm. always figuring those things out. And even before you get to that place, like I remember when I used to do home visits, the first thing you're looking for in home visit is neglect. Like, is there a sign of neglect here? And, you know, that's also like something that I bring to Queer Eye into my own life. I think, am I neglecting myself? And where am I neglecting myself? And then how do I then start to identify the solutions I need to work on that neglect so I'm not neglecting that anymore? Mm-hmm. You know? And for our show, it's a little bit easier in some of the categories because it's like, oh, you're neglecting your hair, your clothes, your home, your diet. Mm-hmm. So now we have to figure out why have you been neglecting those things? What's going mm-hmm. on? And that all started from my work that I did for 12 years and, you know, prior to the real world, after the real world, um, because after the real world, I didn't work in television at all because I didn't, I I had a dream of being in television, but being in a a home where my parents are immigrants, TV is not a real job. Mm. It was like, you have to go get a real job. You have to do something that we can tell people so that we feel proud, you know, that Mm -hmm. whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so 
it wasn't until maybe four or five years ago that my youngest son inspired me to go after my dreams. And that's when working in TV and that's when I started to figure out how can I use the skill set that I have to create this career here as a host. Mm. And so, you know, I bring my training every day to what I do, you Mm -hmm. know? I just wish my title on the show was life coach or something. <laughs> like, yeah. you know. But you know what I think is interesting? And God, I get that. I get what you're saying. And especially how, how that can make you feel. Like, I, I do very serious work, Yeah, actually. <laughs> but I almost wonder, and this is obviously me speculating, but if because the show is so transformative and challenging for people and you manage to challenge people – in such a gentle way, I wonder if they had said social worker, if people would have been immediately turned off, if they would have thought, I don't want to talk about my feelings. I don't want to talk to a therapist. Mm -hmm. I don't want to. So you come in and they say he's this cultural expert and people are like, oh, cool. What's that? Yeah. And they're curious. And so they're energetically open to the work. Whereas you know, the number of people I've spoken to, I'm like, I am the biggest proponent of therapy. I'm like, everybody go to therapy. <laughs> and people get really scared. Yeah. People are like, I well, don't want to Because our go. culture tells people to be afraid of that. Yes. Yeah. which There's is so, so much cra- stigma around it's it. It's so crazy. Chelsea Handler said the smartest thing. I spoke to her recently and she was like, therapy is my mental gym. Amen. She was like, I want my body to be strong. I want my brain to be strong. And I was like, oh yeah, we should start talking about it as a mental gym. Yes. I tell people all the time when I give lectures around the country, I want people to get to a place where they talk about their mental health the same way they talk about their physical health. Yes. And I try to give people suggestions of how they can do that. For instance, if you – we all know that person or all of us will go to work and we'll be like, I'm starting a new diet. I'm going to the gym. I'm doing – we did mm-hmm. it before we started this interview. Yes, we did. We were both like, oh, my gosh, we're, we're going to get our Christmas body on. I'm and ready we're for be our good. Christmas and, body. And like this is the place <laughs> I go for this and like whatever. Yeah. But we don't talk about our mental health in the same way. Mm. And so – I encourage people, the first step is if you're going to talk about a diet, talk about a new way that you're going to focus on your health in front of pub- publicly. Yes. And part of that comes as simple as this. When someone says to you, how are you doing? If you're not okay, do not say that you're okay. And the, we've been trained as a culture to feel like if I say what I'm truly feeling, I'm a burden, that I'm being needy or, you know, mm. like, oh, weak it's a, yeah, or, weak or mm. all the things that come along with that. So you got to start being able to say, I'm not okay, and express it out loud. Because what happens is when you keep it in your head, it becomes darker, it becomes bigger than it is. And anything that's lodged in your subconscious is just waiting to be realized. And will it be realized in a positive way or negative way? Secondly, just like with your physical health, you will find a gym buddy. You'll find a workout partner you'll go with. You'll be like, oh, I need you to come. Let's go to the gym together. Let's go on a run together. But you won't do that with your mental health. You'll sit there and you'll try to figure this out on your own. And the thing is, that's part of the stigma with therapists, counselors, life coach. So why not find someone in your life that's the healthiest person mentally Mm -hmm. and start to have conversation with them? It's an easy step to get to talking about your mental health with someone you can trust. And a lot of times I would recommend it not being a best friend. Because what happens is that when they're your best friend, you think, oh, we're really talking about mental health, but really it's an echo chamber. They're just going to say to you what you need to hear because they understand. It's rare when people really have those true relationships where someone's going to push you out of your comfort zone. That's what a trainer is for. They push you out of your comfort zone. So find someone who's a 
who's talking about their mental health that doesn't know your mom, your dad, your sisters, your cousins, because they're not going to be biased and they're going to try to help to push you. Also, reevaluate your tribe, the people you're around. Same way you would go to a gym and you would mm. be like, I don't like that there's all muscle guys here and they're, they're dropping weights. Same thing. Look at the people around you. Say, is this tribe that I'm around actually what I need to be happy when I walk out of here? Is the people I'm sitting with at lunch, are the people that I'm talking to really my tribe when it comes to my mental health? Same way you're in a gym and I'm like, oh, everyone seems really beautiful and stuck up. I don't want to be here anymore. Find people around you. And so my hope is that people can start to, and I have a whole list of these, of ways that people can simply figure out how to equate their physical health to their mental health. Because that's the only way you're going to really start focusing on it is if you realize it's just as accessible as you going to the gym, yeah. you changing your diet. And you have to be thoughtful about it. Mm-hmm. You have to choose it. It's so awesome. And it is so crazy, isn't it, that we've never really been told to think about it or prioritize it. Yeah. You know, it's it's so it's so wild. Yeah, it starts at school. And I, you know, I try to do a lot of work with the education system in our country because that's where our kids are really being formed even Mm -hmm. more than at home i think for me it goes school television and parents i know a lot of people disagree with me but i personally feel working in social services working with children that's where they're getting the training tools they need to be the adults they look at what's happening in school how people are interacting how they're being taught Mm -hmm. then they get home they're watching their screens their phones their ipads their computers their televisions that are now informing or reinforcing what they just saw at school and then the parents come in and drop little things on them unconsciously or consciously and so if we're looking at this in that way of like this pyramid of like that's at the top well, at school, we need to be talking about these things in a better way. You know, we need to be at school and teachers need to have better training about mental health. I think about the pressure we put on kids and how that affects their lives. You know, like it's so horrible to me that we expect children to figure out their entire lives by the age of 18. Mm-hmm. You have to know what college you have to go to. You have to know what career you want. You have to, it's so irresponsible of us yes. as adults. And how is anyone supposed to figure out what they want, what makes them feel good, what fulfills them without experimenting? Exactly. This idea that you're meant to pick before you've tried anything is so backwards. So backwards. And then that brings to the second point. How are we in a school that no longer fosters curiosity and experimentation? So it's like, you know, once you get to college, they say, pick your course load. You know, now you can try this or try that. But if I've been taught for 12 years, I'm not allowed to pick. I have to just go with this path that you put in front of me. Mm -hmm. Then of course. I don't know how to do that. And yeah. I'm, it's not going to be done properly. And you don't—you certainly don't know how to do it in a healthy way. In a healthy way. So yeah. why can't we get to a place with our education system where, yes, we are, of course, giving fu- fundamentals to our kids, but mm-hmm. where they're actually being able to experiment what they want. I think this yeah. fact of like the fact that electives are being cut, that, you know, there's only two in a, a you know, school now. No. It's you, horrible. You should be having like four or five, six electives. Yes. Personally. Because and art and art dance and all the dance. And, because that's where yeah. you see, you know, I also don't believe that a child should spend all day in a classroom, meaning going from classroom to classroom. There needs to be at least two to three periods outside. Yes. Like that just 
cognitively, anybody, go research it. When you go outside, the sun, the fresh air, mm-hmm. it totally changes your whole mental health, your physical health. It changes everything. It changes the way your brain your connects. Your brain connects. Everything. So why are we keeping children stuck in a classroom? Yes. And then they leave the classroom and leave school where they're not getting any of this training. They're not being able to be curious. They're not getting anything that's really going to give them the skills they need to be their best self. Mm-hmm. And then they go home and now they're watching are their screens that reinforce these negative behaviors and these thoughts of like anxiety, fear. And then by the time the parents get home, they're like, I'm stressed and overwhelmed because I went through that same process. I don't know how to deal with this, mm-hmm. but I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. And they're, you're, they're picking up signals from you that you're not trying to give, mm-hmm. but unconsciously you're giving. And often parents are harping on grades rather than debating with their kids critically thinking with their kids, Amen. teaching their kids to look at two sides of something and exactly. analyze it. And, exactly. and something that I love that you talk about is how as a parent, you don't want to tell your kids you know best. You want to hear their opinion. Always. And tell them your opinion and talk about it. Always. And you validate that their opinions are meaningful. Th- this whole idea of I'm your elder, I know more. It's like, well, but what if you don't? It's- and and they don't. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times we don't. It's like you didn't have the experience I had today. Let's talk about Let's, it. Oh, yeah. And I think that's part of the whole thing with it of like getting to a place where I'm just like parents, we need to start understanding. Mm-hmm. Stop telling your kids. I love that you just said that about the debating about grades and like that's you're no longer a good child. You're not doing what you need to do because you're not getting a grade. Maybe I'm not interested. Maybe there's a learn disability. Mm-hmm. So many things. And then also have a conversation about their day and their experience without telling them what they should be feeling mm-hmm. because you haven't been in their shoes. Mm-hmm. You may think you have. I like. I try to never with my kids when they come home and tell me their issues to be like, oh, I've been there. I know what it's like. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. Because no matter if the large picture seems familiar to me, mm-hmm. meaning you're in high school, you're saying you don't like this teacher. You know, these large picture things may seem familiar to me, but the nuances of it are not the same. Yes. And that means if you can recognize that, that means you deserve to share your opinion, to share your experience, and for us to have a conversation about it. And that's what I try to do with them because that's really what fosters growth and critical thinking and all these beautiful things that adults really actually need. And so it's like, how can we start to switch all these things one by one, you know, the school system, media, and then how parents are treating their kids so that Mm -hmm. we can foster better children. Okay, everybody. How was your experience in school? Because I, I know that you grew up in Texas and then moved to Florida. Yes, when my parents got divorced when I was 15. You were 15 when that happened, mm-hmm. okay. And what was that whole transition? I mean, I guess both with your family and changing school systems. How was that for you as a kid? It was That was challenging for me because I, my father being immigrants, we didn't grow up rich. My, I talk about this in my memoir. He was had a lot of bad qualities, but he had a lot of good qualities. And one of his good qualities that he thought he was doing the best for us is that Though we were never zoned to schools that were better, quote unquote, and the only reason they were better was because they were better funded, better teacher-student ratio. Mm-hmm. And those were normally in white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So he would find an apartment building right on the edge of whatever school was the best school so that we could go there. So 
of course, it gave us better opportunities because we're now in these better schools. But then we were the only children of color in there. Mm. We were the only children or one of 20 kids who had immigrant parents. You know, there might have been an Asian person or an Indian person or whatever. But for the most part, I felt isolated. Mm. So I remember my school lunch is third grade is the last time it happened because I was like so ashamed of my culture. My mother gave me curry goat to bring to school, which is my favorite dish even to this day. Mm -hmm. Curry goat and rice, rice, white rice. If you haven't tried it, people try it. I know it sounds gross. I will gross. go anywhere for curry with you any day. And, and listen, come to the house. We'll I'll, I'll cook I'll it come for up, you. I'm yes. coming over. Okay. <laughs> but we had, she made curry goat for me mm. for lunch to bring. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting to school and being so excited to eat my curry goat. I opened it up and every student around me was like, what the hell is that? What's going on? Gross. You're disgusting. Ew. And I had oh. this spotlight on me that told me my culture was wrong because my father put me in an environment hoping to make me better that mm. then also made me feel bad about who I was. Because it othered you. It othered me. Mm. And I remember picking up my curry goat throwing it in the trash. No. And f every day from then on, I was like, mom, you're never making my lunch again. I'm going to make my own lunch. And I would go to school to mimic what other people did. And that sort of became what I did to survive throughout high school. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I excelled because I never, I never felt like an outcast ever again. I always had tons of friends. I was super involved in student government. I played sports, but it was because I got to this place where I learned how to mimic what the masses did so that people felt comfortable around me and that mm. I no longer felt othered. And how did that, did you notice a difference in experience? I'm curious, just having learned from other people as you grew quite literally in age and size. I mean, you are a tall, big beautiful black you, man <laughs> i'm like you're so handsome but i i have been lucky enough to learn about other people's experiences and one of the things that's always been so striking to me is that my male friends who look like you who have a version of your skin color and your size talk about how the bigger they got the more they needed to be really careful to yes. fit in, to not be seen as stereotypically intimidating. 100%. And I'm curious about your experience in high school, moving from Texas, being in Florida. You, you went to Marjorie Stoneman Marjorie Douglas. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, yeah. And what that's like, not only being in the body that you were born in, but being the man that you were born as, being this big, beautiful black man who's also gay – what what is that like when you're a teenager? It made me very self-conscious and self-aware mm. because I was very clear about my actions. And that mm. started even before then. So I always was very aware of how I approached people, what I said, what activities I did, how I dressed, mm. where I went. And it's a very unhealthy place and state to live in where you're mm -hmm. constantly worried about what others' perception of you is going to be. But for me, it was a protection. It was like, I got to protect myself. I don't want to be outcast. I want to have friends. I want to feel good. I want to not be seen as a threat. I, all these things. So right. I would consistently 
I don't want to be seen as the other because I can't. I started letting people into my life regarding my sexuality at the age of 15. So you came out at 15. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't ever use the term coming out because I think it takes away the power from people in our community. I use the term letting people in, which is what you, what it is. Oh, I love You know, that. like coming out gives someone else the power to accept or deny you. And the only person who you should be worried about accepting you is yourself. And also mm. it helps you to realize you can set boundaries. You know, me yeah. letting someone in to that intimate part of my life means that I respect you and love you enough. It doesn't mean that I'm ashamed if I didn't le- don't let her in or I don't let her in. It's your choice. It's my choice. Mm. And except versus this idea it's that- just another gem just yeah, dropped on the floor. It, appreciate it, yes. appreciate Versus this idea that it's not my choice and everyone has to know. Like, wow. So I started letting people into my life at 15 and- and and you know it it was like I didn't want to be perceived as you know wrong because of my sexuality, and so I picked up quickly that if I was more effeminate, that somehow that it back then seemed I was wrong. So mm. I put on this sort of idea that I'm more masculine. It it, it drew me into football. It drew me in, mm. and so it was always a protection of like how I talked about my culture and how I talked about my parents being immigrants, you mm. know, um, I, for the longest, I stopped talking about them coming to this country and not having anything. Like it was omitted from the story I would tell because I was like, you're going to think that my parents are, were princes and queens in their country and we just came here and now we're just as good as you. I wasn't going to say anymore that they struggled and because I didn't see the beauty in their struggle. It was like their struggle made me feel different because your parents didn't struggle. And so I constantly just found myself in those moments of like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do to make other people feel like I'm okay and that they can be all right around me? Mm. And it got exhausting. And then by the time I got to... 12th grade, I got accepted to several colleges and my father saw me living this very dual, exhausting existence. Mm-hmm. And he never talked about it with me, but he was like, he knew enough was enough. I mean, even to the point, I mean, I talk about this in my book. I, people didn't know me as Karamo in high school. My nickname was first KK. And then I stopped having people call me KK because I thought it was too young sounding because I didn't want anyone to call me Karamo because it, it mean I was different and people couldn't pronounce it. And they would say, you're Camaro and Camu. And I just was like, nope. Mm. So I we went to KK. And then when we got to high school, I didn't like KK because it was young. So I started calling myself Jason. Where the hell Jason came from? Don't know. But it was Whoa. the most easygoing name. So people in high school called me Jason. I was known as Jason. Wow. Literally. And so my father watching his son go by Jason and he gave me my name. He's a Rastafari and he was proud of giving his son a name from African diaspora that had meaning. And he was like, you're going by Jason. What are you ashamed of? Mm -hmm. And so as I was going, getting, picking the college, I was going to accept it to, he strongly encouraged me to go to historically black college and university. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand at the time because it was confusing to me. You had put me for the last 12 years in predominantly white schools. And now you're forcing me to go to a predominantly black school. It didn't make any sense to me. And I fought against it. And I was like, what is wrong with you? You you literally made me this way. And now yes. you're trying to force me to go somewhere else. I don't, I don't have that many black friends. I don't know any of these things. Like, what are you, what are you doing to me? But dad won. Best decision he ever made because I got to Florida A&M University where I graduated from and I was surrounded around people of color who had immigrant parents who Mm. owned their story, who didn't feel like they had to play and do things 
to fit in, who found the the beauty in their struggle and the beauty of their strength. And, and all of a sudden, I just, I remember the first day I read about this, I walked into orientation and the girl walking in who was walking in, her name was Karama. First time I ever met somebody. And she was like, what's your name? And I was like, I almost said Jason. And she was like, I was like, Karamo. She was like, oh, just like mine. How cool. Go on, Karamo. It was the first time I've experienced that because in wow. high school, when someone said Karamo, all of my friends and teachers were like, Karamo, what kind of name is that? First time. Got into this large auditorium with other students. The freshman advisor got on stage and started saying our names to give us our package. Mm-hmm. They got to my name and this woman did not mispronounce my name. And all of a sudden I was on this path where I felt accepted. I now was Karamo. Then I remember they had this thing on campus where they had all the clubs and there was a big Jamaican club there. There was a Cuban club and my parents were Jamaican and Cuban. And I was like, what? And they had food out there for the little festival. And guess what they had out there? No BS. Curry goat. Yes. And I was like, oh, oh I, I can eat this and no one's going to make fun of me. And to feel seen. I feel seen and I feel safe. And that changed the way that I started going through life. And I always try wow. to encourage people, anytime you feel like you have to code switch, mm-hmm. you know, like change who you are to fit into an environment, that's what that means, assimilate in some way. Anytime you have to hide who you are, it's, it's, I understand why you're doing it. You're trying to, def- to defend yourself. You're trying to feel safe. But as you're on your journey of growth, Find your tribe inside of social media, uh, in a club, somewhere. Actively just try Mm -hmm. to find people who are going to see you for who you are. And that's the first step in loving yourself, finding self-worth, and Mm -hmm. being okay with every part of your identity. Mm -hmm. I think so much about, and I'm glad you brought it up, I was thinking while you were talking about that sort of dual life you felt like you were leading in high school, the amount of emotional labor that code switching requires of oh, people. Amen. Like, I, th- I think we hear people talk about emotional labor in relationships and how in heteronormative relationships, women are often assigned a lot of emotional labor around the house and with the kids. And they are assigned the most. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's bananas. It's like, ugh. But I, I think that we have to have conversations around the emotional labor that is heaped on children when assimilation is required for survival. And when I think about how sad that is, you know, my, I am, for my dad, I'm a first generation American and via my mom, a second, my mom's mom and grandparents came here literally on a boat through Ellis Island from Italy. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother wanted them to assimilate so badly because they experienced such intense bigotry in New York City. There was so much, you know, the 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 slurs used for Italian people while not amounting to the amount of horror by any sense that people of color have gone through. They were really degrading and traumatizing in the relativism that my family was experiencing, looking the way we look but being immigrants. And my grandmother demanded that her mother stop speaking Italian to my mother and her brother. They were not allowed to speak Italian in the house. And my mom lost her culture. She doesn't have it anymore. And she knows how to make her grandmother's meatballs. And she knows there's a couple of things that she held because she used to cook with her grandma. 
But my great grandma made pasta by hand and all she had all of these traditions. They made cheese in the basement and in one generation it disappeared. And I'm so for all the nightmarishness that exists in the world today and, you know, the the quote leadership, I can't call them leaders, that we have installed in the country frightened me very much for all of us. But I am so grateful for whatever's happening that we get to have these conversations yes. and that I feel like there's a whole group of people really working to teach kids that different is exciting mm -hmm. and that we should lean into other people's cultures mm -hmm. and learn about other people's cultures. And I feel so grateful that I got to go to a junior high and high school where that was embraced. We had a culture day every semester really? and all the families would come and my friend Mega's mom would do henna for people. And we learned about Hinduism and my friend Chelsea's parents who were Greek Orthodox would make, you know, the, the rice and, and leaf wraps. Yes. I don't even, I don't know what they're called. I can't remember, but we, and we would experience everybody's food and families and learn about people's religions. And it was, I think about how progressive the people who ran that school were, by the way, in Pasadena, which like you wouldn't expect. And, they wanted us to be in love with each other's worlds. Yeah. And that is one of the things, back to the earlier part of our conversation, that I feel like we're lacking in school. Yes. Can you imagine if we taught kids to love culture? That would be amazing. Uh, I if, mean, come on. If like, we taught kids empathy education around consent and handholding and hitting and oh hugging and all of these. To it, acknowledge the emotional labor they're experiencing. Yes. Like all these things should are being lost. I mean, yeah. I wish we had a culture day. That would have probably changed my entire experience growing yeah. up. To hear that, there was none of that. Like, yeah. the Asian kids in my school never talked about their, you know, like, I remember probably thinking until I was probably in the sixth, seventh grade that all Asian people were Chinese. Seriously, I know it sounds ignorant now, but at the time, how, I never experienced how were any you other know? Asian people. And my Asian friends didn't talk about it because... They didn't want to seem different than the 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 white kids, and so they were like, "We're not going to talk about this." And all I knew was the age, the Chinese spot that we went to would eat. So I'm like, "Oh, everyone's Chinese." And then I started getting older. I was like, "You're Cambodian? Oh, you're Japanese? Oh, you're how beautiful is all these different cultures?" That if we had a culture day, and I could have learned that early on versus being a 22, 23 year old adult or 21 year old adult that was actively going after it, mm -hmm. how much would my world and experience have changed? Mm -hmm. You know, like I just wish that we could really take more moments to teach kids and to be better to children. Uh, you know, and then inadvertently we're going to be better to ourselves because that's where the change and the shift happens. And I don't think we're focusing yeah. on that enough. Yeah. yeah. God, that's so true. What that leads me thinking about kids. What's it like to be a dad? It's the worst thing on the face of the <laughs> No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. It is like, I feel like I am in a, Ugh, it is it's so weird how old are your boys they're 22 and 18 now or 19 wow. and you didn't know no i did not have any idea how did all that happen because you you had a girlfriend yes and then 
when so, you started letting people in, yep. you, you've been in relationships with men since. Yep. So she was the last girl I dated when I was 14. Okay. And she was my best friend. And we felt safe with each other. And so I let her into my life. So she was aware that I um, identified as gay. And, but we still decided because we were feeling safe with each other that we lose our virginity to each other. And we didn't have any type of like real conversations about safe sex that wasn't being talked about in our school. There was, well, that's another hot mess uh, with education. Right. Like, hello, sex ed is important. Very. And so there was none of these conversations. So, of course, I didn't know what an orgasm meant. I didn't know what any of this meant. And mm-hmm. so it lasted for three minutes after we were done. <laughs> three, if even. After we were done, I was like, mm, so I don't ever want to do that again. Because I was like, I don't feel good. And I feel really bad for that moment because I always think, and I've, I've told her this many times because we're still close friends. Um I'm always like apologizing. She's like, stop apologizing. But I always feel bad. I'm like, your first experience, the guy afterwards was like, gross. I like, <laughs> was like, definitely not for yeah, me. Yeah, I'm like, not for me. Know, like, I'm like, <laughs> I, I messed with your self-esteem and your worth Aww. because like, and she's like, it's like, she's like, it's fine. But like, I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, because yeah. I got to experience my first time again when I had my first sexual encounter with a male. Right. And so- you didn't get that do-over. I got a do-over. You didn't. Right. And I always feel bad. But anyway, she got pregnant, but I didn't know. And our parents, my parents got divorced and I moved to Florida. And wow. she had moved away before I moved to Florida. So I didn't know. This is before because, you know, I'm 38. Um, I just turned 38. We didn't have how internet and social media is now. There was none of that. Yeah. So when someone moved, it was like they were gone, gone forever. Yeah, I, yeah. There was no following you on social media to see that you had moved to Kansas or wherever. It was like you're gone. Right. And so I never thought about her because now I started on this journey of like, where are boys? I'm boy crazy. I like boys. Where's the boys? Like, what boy am I going to date? Right. And so the girl. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so I was like, I'm not thinking about her anymore. Yeah. And. I went through high school, went to college, and then when I was coming home from this event, this real-world road rules event, there was a stack of papers on my doorstep for back child support. And I actually thought, God honest, do y'all remember that show um, Punked? I talk about this all the time. I thought that I was being punked. You're like, where's the camera? Yeah, I swore that Ashton Kutcher was in my house, and he was such a hottie back then. And he might, he's still a hottie now. But- I was like, Ashton Kutcher's in my house. So I ran downstairs, changed clothes because I was about to meet Ashton Kutcher. Because I was like, there's no way I have a kid. I have not. I did it once. Wait, does he know this story? No. I I feel like there's like a hot dad hang in y'all's future. Yo, I'm so down to hang with Ashton. Cool, good looking dads who are funny. I'm down to hang with Ashton. Sorry, that's a tangent. You go on, but I'm like, wait a minute, you have to tell him this. I'm so down. Like, literally, the outfit I changed into for Ashton Kutcher, you could not imagine. It was like my best Sean John velour suit. What? Oh, I was like, (laughs) was it a bomber jacket? No, no, it wasn't a bomber. It was a Sean John, because Sean John velour suits were. Popping yeah, back then, yeah, know? that was like the era of the juicy tracksuit. The too. juicy tracksuit. Oh my god, the colors that I used to wear those in. I you look back and, and I'm like, I'm just so humiliated. That you I and did I that. both. Those long T-shirts that hip hop told me and my culture to wear. I was like, this is a skirt. Why do I have on yeah. a long white? You're like, t-shirt? I'm wearing a dress. I like, which now I'm fine with. But like back yeah. then, it was like. What is going on with this long T-shirt? Why is this fashion? But nonetheless, yeah. But it was God. It was a moment. Oh, it was a moment. I liked I'm, it. Yeah, I'm, I liked it then. I'm glad it's gone. And you know, fashion comes back around. I'm like, please don't let this come back. Please. <laughs> but you know Let's it just will. skip over the early 2000s and go back to the 90s or something, or the 80s. The 90s or the 70s. are good. Yeah. 90s were good. You 90s know what I mean? Good. So I I changed. So you changed. Ran inside. <laughs> 
and there was no lights on. I was like, oh, they're hiding in the back. Ashton's in the back. Ashton's in my room is what I'm thinking in my head. And threw the papers down. And I was like, who's home? Like all dramatic. A mess. And nobody was there. And so I was like, oh, this must be for my next door neighbor because this clearly is not for me. There's no child paternity coming for me. Right. And later on that night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, it was a Friday. I went to the, go get some drink and was looking at the papers. And I saw her name, my name. And then this child's name, who's ironically, dun, dun, dun. Remember I told you in high school, I went by Jason. I actually Jason. went by Jason Rain. His name was Jason Rashad. And so I was like, if this is a joke, this is a really well-crafted joke and I'm not laughing. Because how did you, like, how in the hell did you find her name, my name, and then you knew I went by Jason Rain and now you have Jason Rashad as the child. I was like... Did you have that like hot, tingly feeling in your whole body? All of my body. I was freaking out. Wow. And it was 2 o'clock in the morning and I was like, what do I do? Because no one's here and like I can't call anybody. And it was the weekend right after that. So it was like I couldn't even call the number on it. And fast forward, called, found out that I need to come home back to Texas to do a paternity test. Did it. Found out the kid was mine. They gave me her address because she didn't have a phone number. And I showed up on her doorstep and knocked. And all of a sudden, I was the dad. It was like, you know, my child was nine going on 10 at the time. So here I am. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And how old were you? 26. Wow. Yeah, it's like, what am I supposed to do with a a, a nine-year-old? Like, I don't know this, nine going on 10. I'm like, we were. And so this is after the real world? After the real world. So life was were you Ariana. back in the world of social work at this point? No. Or? I was okay. doing these club appearances where I'd get paid $10,000 to drink with college students. No way. Which at that point, I was balling because it was like, wow. you'd go in there and get drunk. But I was also on a spiral because it was like, I would literally go to well, the club. Well, your job was to party. Yeah, my job was to party. Ooh. And I would literally walk into the, the club and they would have liquor, cocaine, ecstasy, no. all of that ready because they wanted to be more hyped up. Oh my so they're God. like, if you're sober, you're not going to have a good time with these kids. So I like, missed this you. whole window. I was like working in North Carolina, which at the time I was like, I just want to go home. But I think I think it was a real good thing to be far, far away from yes. that. Amen. Because yes, that you, era really took a lot of people down. And it's took a sad. lot of people down. And I don't think we've never really talked about it. And like, whoa, you know, even when you see some of the effects of some of our biggest stars today, who yeah. I still respect, like. I love Britney Spears, but that era did a number on her self-esteem, mental health in a way that we see it and people like to make fun of, but we don't realize like that machine that was around her and all the things that were going on that still even happens today was really bad. And I suffered from that dramatically. So you're in the middle of that Mm -hmm. scene and experience and you've. You and said earlier, you feel like you were like, losing yourself. Oh, I, yeah. And you find out you're a dad. Yeah. And so, you know, people always are like, because I see my relationship with my son, they're like, you saved his life. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, we saved each other's lives. Yeah. Because being seeing him, it forced me to wake up. What was that mirror like? Like to, to have a little boy. Oh, my gosh. Who's you look at you for the first time. Yeah. What was that like? I have to tell you. Well, first when I saw him. There was this hole that like was in me and I didn't know it was in me that when I saw him walk around the corner, like it started to sew itself up. I, I It's a vivid feeling that I'll never forget of like, I just felt like, what is going on in my stomach? And like, at, then it was nerves, but now I realize <laughs> I'm done. I'm crying. That's beautiful. But yeah, it just, I just felt everything just because seeing him was like 
it was a piece that was missing. And then he started to fill it. But then I realized as he was looking at me and he was asking me questions, he was starting to say like, what do you do? What's your life? And I was like, I'm ashamed to tell him every bit that a month ago I was in a club doing lines of cocaine drunk and that I just two years ago had a year and a half ago was beating up some guy. I was like, I can't say any of this to him. I, I can't tell him this. And I think this is the difference in the beauty of my experience because when a child is newborn and you have that child from newborn, mm. you know, we all, you do this in all of our relationships, we feel comfortable in our negative behavior. Mm. And so what happens is that you do the negative behavior once then you do it again, and then it becomes the norm. Mm-hmm. And so you never have to really explain to your child what's going on because you're just living, it's going on. And but that's how they know you. They know you that. And they know you as that. And it's like mm-hmm. what it is. With me, he didn't know me. So now there had to be a full conversation of all the things he didn't know about me. Mm-hmm. And that mirror was like, I have to do better because he can't, he can't, he can't want that. He can't, he can't think that's okay. He can't see that in himself. He, mm-hmm. It's not gonna work. And it changed me dramatically. I was like, no more drinking, no more drugs. I reevaluated my tribe. I looked at the people around me. And I I tell people all the time, think about who needs a front row seat and who needs an orchestra seat and who needs a balcony seat. And everyone got reshuffled around. And I stayed in Texas. I didn't come back to California. And I just got my life in order. And as I was getting my life in order, I would slowly give him pieces of information that he could digest Mm. and understand my growth. Because Mm -hmm. if you just put it all on him, he's not going to get it. So I would slowly feed him pieces that he could digest and give him the truth behind it. So I wouldn't just say, yeah, dad did drugs. I would say dad was sad. I was in a dark place and people around me who, who were in a dark place as well, took advantage of the fact that I was lonely and sad and encouraged me to use drugs and alcohol to feel better about myself to mask it to mask it Mm. and he was like really and i was like yeah you know like have you ever been sad and then someone's like well go drink a soda or do something and he's like yeah and i was like that's what they were basically doing for me with drugs and he was like oh and he was like it didn't work and i was like no it made me worse Mm -hmm. and so now he doesn't have drug issues because of the way i I gave it to him in a digestible way wow and so we just got better Thanks. Because people just, hide things from their kids. Which you shouldn't. And not. then their kids don't know to avoid those things or how to process those yeah, things. Or how to recognize it when it's coming. Yes. And that's the reason I described it to him that way. I said, first me, because every statement we ever make about our lives should always start with an I statement. Mm-hmm. If you ever find yourself in a relationship, people out there listening, and you start to see yourself saying, they're the issue, we're the problem, telling you you're already stepping off on the wrong foot, it should always start with I. And so by telling him that, I felt sad, I felt down, Mm -hmm. I felt unhappy. Let him know that if he finds himself in these spaces where he feels sad, he feels unhappy, it's not because someone else, it's his own personal feeling. Mm -hmm. And then I said, secondly, there was somebody that recognized that in me and told me if I wanna feel better, I should use this. So it allowed him to realize when he's feeling sad or down or isolated, if someone came up to him and said, hey, have a drink with me, he was like, oh, this is what dad said. I'm feeling sad. And now they're recognizing that me and they're trying to make me do something that they 
it's going to make me feel worse. It's, it's, it's digestible steps that he still to this day uses so that he can recognize it. Because I don't think we teach kids how to recognize the negative behaviors. And what happens is that you can't put a kid in college when you never gave them these tools and tell them, be able to recognize a pervert. Be able to recognize drinking too much. Be able to recognize when things are not going good. Yes. Because we just tell you, watch out for the pervert. Mm-hmm. But if the pervert is a really handsome guy who has now made me feel so seen and special and who says, I'll walk you home after mm-hmm. the party. And I don't realize that perverts have come in pretty packages because you've never given me mm-hmm. how to recognize it. You get what I'm saying? You know, I'm like over amen, here sister. literally raising my hand. I'm like, did it. You yep. Know? Yep. And so I try to teach my kids how to recognize things, then give them tools of how to handle it. That's amazing. And that's a really important distinction. And and you're right. You've said it more than once that the tools are what we need. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so much stress out there culturally right now because people are identifying the problems but don't know what to do with them. Yep. Agreed. And. Thank you for sharing so many tools today because I think this is going to be really helpful for Thanks people. Thanks for sharing part of your story. I learned more about you too and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this. It's kind of cool. Yeah. it's I just love to get into things with people. <laughs> but So I have a question. So you met Jason when he was nine, but you have two boys. Yes. So they had the same biological mother. Got it. Ironically, the very first photo, the night that I met Jason, mm-hmm. actually the very first photo I have was with my other son, Chris. So before Jason came around the corner... His brother, Chris, came around the corner because my son's mother has five children. And so this kid ran around the corner, grabbed my leg, and I'd never seen him. So I didn't know what my son looked like. Right. And so I was like, is this him pointing down? And she was like, nope. But this kid it was held onto my leg. Aww. And then all of a sudden, my son walks around the corner. And he's on this side. And so the very first photo of us is my son here and this other kid who I, at the time I didn't know I would adopt one day. And basically how it came about is – I decided to stay in Texas so that I could I didn't want to rip my kid away from his family and all mm-hmm. he ever knew. And also I had members of my family that were still in Texas. So I want him to get to know all of us. I also need the time to be there to heal, to get my life in order. And during that time, which I realize now divinely why I stayed, we found out that he was being abused by somebody in the household and they were going to remove him from the house. By no fault of his mother's, you know, there was just somebody who was grooming and doing things that were inappropriate Mm -hmm. and you know the thing is that i've also working in social services try to help the states recognize like his mom didn't know so why are you ripping a child out of his safest environment thinking that's going to help him but luckily i was there and so when they ripped him out they needed safe placement and if they couldn't find it that's when you're going to foster care Mm -hmm. so because i was a safe placement from the state i was like well he can stay with me for a week or two while we figure this out a week turned to two, two turned to three, three turned to two months, two months turned to four. And during that time, he started doing extremely well because he had me, he had his brother. He was away from that environment, but also he wasn't ripped away from his mother and his siblings. And his mother's a great woman. And so I was still, because I knew the way the state worked, he was still having the supervised visit with his mom Mm -hmm. where I was there making sure nothing was happening. But he didn't know that. He was just like, I'm hanging with my mom and my sisters. And so everything was going by the state's accordance, but he didn't feel Mm -hmm. like he was the issue. 
Because when you rip a child out of their home, they internalize that as I'm the problem. Mm -hmm. You got to remember, the person that caused whatever issue is still there, why am I gone? Why am I removed? Why am I being punished? But Mm -hmm. because of the way that we were able to handle the situation, he didn't feel like he was the problem. And so he started doing extremely well and, you know, everything got handled and he was going to go back home with his mom. And I stopped and was like, hey, our other son is doing really great. You have a lot on your plate. What would you think about him coming and staying with me? And the reason I give his mother so much credit is because as adults and also as mothers, people have always been like, she gave up her kids. She did not give up her children. Mm -hmm. She said to me, if you can give our child a better life and you can keep us a tight-knit family, Mm -hmm. then I would love for our son to be raised by us. And I was thinking, Mm -hmm. how special is that for no ego, no anything else, but for you Mm -hmm. to put your child's needs first. Mm -hmm. And I always to this day respect and bow down to my children's mother because I'm like, that takes a very strong, comfortable woman Mm -hmm. to say, let me give our child the best life. But you have to make sure that we are always together. A family, of course. And so he moved in. We asked him and he was like, yes. And then he started just flourishing. And to this day, when they have an issue, there's no dad and mom disconnected. You call both of us. We make all decisions together. She was just in California. She's always here Mm. because we're a family unit. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And I think there's something, What I mean, to commend you both, because there's this weird thing, right, where people think if something's non-conventional, something must be wrong. But it's like any any non-conventional family, any split family unit, and any it's non-conventional. Most I things agree. in the world are non-conventional. So why should a quote non-conventional solution be off the table? Agreed. At the end of the day, you cultivated and created a space that was so healthy for your kids and between the two of you for all those kids. Yep. And that's so well, big thing. Illuminating. Thank you. Well, a big thing for me, remember earlier I said every statement should start with I. Yeah. There's a little mantra I kind of also say to myself is that every statement should start with I, but I should also think about my intention. Mm. And I do that with everything. So before I even walked in here, to do this interview, I said, what is my intention? And I was like, my intention is to be open, honest, and have fun with you. And when we were doing this with our kids, and I think about the conversation about unconventional families and what's going on, when I sat down with my son's mother, I said, our intention should be him to have the best life. And I asked her, is that your intention? And so I always try to encourage people to think anytime they think something is different or shouldn't be how it is. Even when I work on the Hill, like I go to the, you know, to Washington a lot to try to do stuff. I always try to help people to say, what is your intention here with this? Mm. If, if your intention, especially when it comes to children, your intention should always be children to have the best life possible, to heal, to grow, to be happy. And if the actions you're taking are not in line with that intention, then we have to figure out how to get you to that place where that's your intention. And that's work people have to do on themselves. And so for our children, the reason they're happy and healthy is because we've always set the intention that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing as adults in a relationship, no matter what I'm experiencing day by day, I have to step into the house and my intention is for them to be happy, healthy, and to be good. Mm. So I love that. Yeah. What, what does your work in Washington look like? That's a lot. I feel like I'm in Washington more than I am doing anything. I love uh, it. I know, I know. Well, you know, we have such amazing platforms. You're the same way, and which mm-hmm. I, why I respect I'm you. I'm like, I let's mean, storm 
the Capitol. Certainly, Let's right. go. Yes, yes. But you know, like yeah. it's your. I, it's one of the reasons I respect you and love you on top of your talent, on top of you being sweet. But we're both like, no, I'm. If I there's this an issue, why not? And it doesn't mean that I feel like be, because we have these platforms that we're going to change the day. But what I realize is that we have the power to inform more people and to encourage people and to and invite s- more people into those conversations. People. Exactly, and so. I'm. I was just there advocating. Um, Representative John Lewis um, called me up and said, "We have." I know. Isn't he, oh my god! If John icon. Lewis called me, I think I would drop dead. Uh, I might. I, I would, You might be talking to a ghost right now. Because oh I'm just like, well, okay, yeah, sure. You walking with Martin Luther King, and now you want to walk with me? Sure, wow. we'll do. Um, but there's he's introducing a new bill called the Every Child Deserves a Family Act. And was like, I know your work background in social services. I know mm-hmm. you with your children. And basically, most people don't realize is that adoption agencies have the license to discriminate against LGBT people, single people, mm-hmm. people with different religions. And so this is not just a, a LGBT issue. This is mm-hmm. there is a single mother right here who wants to raise a child. And the state is like, no, that's unfit. Like, what do you mean that's unfit? If I have the income, I have the background, I have everything that this mm-hmm. child needs, why can't the child be in my household and have love? So you'd prefer the child to be in foster care system or mm-hmm. they have the right to say you're, you identify as Jewish and I don't respect that so you don't get a child. And so this, this Every Child Deserves a Family Act is to encourage you know, a bill to be enacted that says you can't discriminate against a child getting a home. goes mm-hmm. back to the intention. Mm-hmm. If our intention is to see children be happy and grow so they can be great American citizens, mm-hmm. why are we denying them families when people are qualified and willing to take them in? Yes, and who have the true desire. The thing that always confounds me about that, and, and I think I've been more aware of it being state to state depending on whatever's going on there, more aware of it being an LGBTQ issue, I hadn't considered the faith-based side. All of it is unacceptable to discriminate. but Or the single side. Yeah, or the single side. But it's so crazy to me when, you know, you hear these sort of religiously-based adoption groups saying that they won't place children in homes with same-sex parents. I'm like, those are parents who couldn't get pregnant by accident on a fluke if they tried. And they want the shot. They they intentionally choose, want, want to love and support mm-hmm. a child. How could you deny love to someone? Well, that's the problem. And that's what that was one of my big things there of like, I can't believe that we're adults in this room debating a child receiving love. It, no. I, it was one of the way I started my speeches every time. I think it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, during the time, because I was just there about two and a half weeks ago advocating is it was at the same time when we saw certain states passing these anti-adoption laws. And, you know, I was saying to representatives of those states, how dare you, mm-hmm. first of all, try to take away a woman's right? Mm-hmm. And then now you're saying you don't have the right to make a choice for your body. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to force you to have a child. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to say in that same state, that child that I've now forced you to have if you can't take care of them, we're not also going to give them a family because yeah. this family over here who's a same-sex couple or this person who's a single parent but has the means or this person who's a Muslim, you're not going to allow them to adopt this child that you just now force this woman to have. Mm-hmm. It just is the most backwards it's way so of backwards. thinking. And like when I was there, it was just like, let's break this down. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Mm-hmm. So 
you it, it, and 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 the conversation we had was really in that way of just like I'm gonna use my platform to say you're ass backwards in every single way and we're yes. not gonna stand for it anymore. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're you're not, not gonna, gonna first pretend. of all take a woman's weight rights away from her, and nope. then on top of that, so now it's like you're affecting all of us as human beings. I mean, we already knew that, but then mm-hmm. when you break it down, you're affecting this woman, you're affecting this child, mm-hmm. you're affecting our country. It's like mm-hmm. it's like a never ending cycle that you think you're doing some doing god's work it's like Mm -hmm. give me a break and when it all comes back so clearly to control Control. because it's about controlling the woman it's about controlling the child it's about controlling people Mm -hmm. from underserved communities the disparity in drug sentencing for example and how it affects people of color versus white people it's a joke joke it's like this is about controlling people so that this you know white patriarchal heteronormative ruling wealth class can yep. maintain power and for what yes that's it's exactly not, what it is it's not helping anybody out no nope. all of the places and whether we're talking about communities or even companies it's like companies are an easy place to look at the data because there's so much information and mm-hmm. and everyone understands money to you know as, as a sort of metric and it's like companies with more diversity more time off paid family leave for both men and women you know when you go down the 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 list of beautiful culture in a in a company the revenue is always higher higher the company because, retention is always higher yeah because the productivity like, oh, is always higher it. yeah it's like we do better when we embrace people and we support people and we give them what they need yeah. mm-hmm. Th- this other thing it's it's a it's a lie that to your point when you break it down so clearly is a lie. And I do think not to say that because we have platforms we know more. Of course. In any way. But what I will say is when you have a platform and you have access. Yes. When I get to sit down with some of the most incredible leaders in the country and you do and this person does we better do something with it. Yep. Because if we're just like sitting around posting selfies with our eventual Christmas bodies okay. all day, like, no, what are we doing? Doesn't work, yes. Yeah, it's like we better do something good. We better try to leave this world better than when we found 100%, 100%. it. 100%, 100%. I have to tell you something. It's another part of my work that I've been really trying to do. And this is outside of the Capitol, but I also was kind of doing it there, is, you know, when we talk about this, these white male patriarchal this that's really causing this sort of like control this desire to control all of us mm-hmm. is that i've been trying very hard in my work recently to have these one-on-one conversations with straight white men mm-hmm. and i actually just started ask this is you're gonna see them soon because i've actually asked and these are not guys i know these are people that i'm just like hey you mind talking to me Mm-hmm. And I record the last one. This is like the the the, the tenth one I've had, mm-hmm. where I'm realizing that if I don't start to reach out to this group of men mm-hmm. and say, everywhere you go right now, you're being attacked. Mm-hmm. You're being told you're wrong. You're horrible. Yeah. You're horrible. It's a hard thing for them to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, listen, anybody hearing me, please don't send me hate mail because I'm not saying, oh, we should be forgiving. I mean, like, they're 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 the victims. I'm not saying that. No, but I commend you because you are saying that everyone is a human and everyone exactly. is sensitive. Exactly. Everyone's sensitive. And what's happening is that part of this desire to keep the control is this fear. Mm-hmm. And fear, and anytime we make fear-based decisions or have fear-based thoughts, it causes us to do irrational things. And so you have to understand the behavior we're seeing is based out of fear. Mm-hmm. And unless 
you tackle that fear with education and love and empathy, then you're just going to see more people falling deeper and deeper into that fear. That's why networks like Fox News work so well is because they incite fear in people. And when yes. I'm fearful, of course, if when it's dark outside, people listen. And not, not to you, Sophia, but people, <laughs> people listen. Friends, listen. I'm ready to listen. If you're in your house and it's dark outside and there's no lights coming on and I say to you, there's a killer out there. You're going to believe me because you can't see what's out there. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't believe me, it's going to get lodged in your subconscious and you're Mm going to get more and more nervous. And every night you're going to get suspicious and you're Mm -hmm. going to be you're going to be uncomfortable. And that's what's happening right now. There is a group of people in our world, white men, who have been told it's dark outside and you should be suspicious. And the suspicion that we're telling them to have is that mm-hmm. everything that you have known of your power, of your beauty, of your thing, you're not going to have anymore. That's a scary place. Mm-hmm. If I told you today I'm going to rip your home away from you, you'd be scared out of your mind. You're going to do whatever you need to do it. It's not proper behavior. It's not right behavior, but it is fear-based behavior. And so my hope is that as I'm trying to work on capital, that I can also work on the minds and emotions of these individuals to say, mm-hmm. let's break it down and talk about this fear. It's irrational. Yes. Because by me getting something, by a woman getting something, by us all being equal does not take away from Mm -hmm. you. And that's what's been told to you so often is that by other people getting the same things you have that you're somehow not going to have it anymore. And I do think to your point, it's about the nuance and it's about how we talk about it. Exactly. Because what I've had to learn is, is when I, you know, say a phrase like I just said and talk about the system in power that the individuals who look like the system feel like they're being told they're wrong. Exactly. So when I'm out speaking now, I talk and I and I say something about like, you know, these old white guys in power. I'm like, just to clarify, I know a lot of great old white guys. My dad is an old white oh, guy. Exactly. My dad know? is the sweetest, kindest. He's this like progressive, raging feminist. He's awesome. Yeah. So I'm not saying you are bad. I'm saying that an unequal system is exactly, a problem. Exactly. And the people who benefit in a system that harms others in the process of some benefiting is dangerous. Yep. And I think it's really important. And what I have learned sitting at the feet of so many of the activists and friends in my life who are people and women of color is that when I am asked to call in other white women, for example, around the election to talk about how our voting block, not yeah. me, but the voting block voted yeah. against our own interests. I I have to be very careful and say, look, it's the system that is dangerous to all of us. Exactly. Like my my friend Brittany Packnett, who is the most brilliant woman who's been on tour with Pod Save America, was like, white ladies, the patriarchy doesn't have anything for you. Yeah. You have to stop believing that it does. Mm-hmm. And she's right. It's damaging to all of us. And it's damaging to the white men in the patriarchy too. And I think that what is so important is that we don't encourage a feeling of by other people gaining you you lose. What we start having a conversation of is there is actually more than enough to go around for Amen. all of us to gain. Amen. And, but and but that community needs to hear that. Mm-hmm. And so you just said it mm-hmm. like when we say these generalizations of all white men or whatever then what happens is that we turn a whole group off. When we say white women voted for Trump and they're the problem, then you turn all white women off. It's the same way when you say all black people are thugs or criminals. You turn black people off from whatever you're saying. And so for me, it's like, okay, 
I'm not trying to change the world, but if I can have small conversations with white mm. men and say, listen, I'm not going to call you a problem right now. I'm not going to tell you you're a problem because mm. you're being told you're a problem. And of course, if I'm told every day I'm the problem, I don't want to talk to the people who think I'm a problem. Right. So I'm just going to go around people that think I'm not the problem, who I'm not suspicious of, that mm -hmm. are it's not night outside. Mm -hmm. I'm not suspicious of them and I'm going to feel and comfortable around them. So no, come so then over we here. continue self-segmenting worse exactly. and worse and worse. And so now I'm going to say, let me invite you in. Let's have some conversations where I want to hear what you have to say. Empathetic listening is something key that we don't teach each other, teach kids anymore. We've forgotten how to do. And what empathetic listening is, people, is where you talk to someone without having a response. So most of us, when we get into conversations, especially when it comes to politics or different beliefs, we already know what we're about to say before they even say it. Mm -hmm. So we already have our response and we're ready to say, oh, no, 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 let me tell you why you're wrong. And empathetic listening says, calm down, listen fully without any opinion or judgment and then respond. And so when I'm speaking to these white men, I go in from an empathetic place and I empathetically listen because I'm like, okay, tell me what's going on with you. And people have told me I'm foolish, I'm stupid. They're like, why are you doing this? You're giving them more power. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to learn from them mm -hmm. so that they can learn from me. Mm -hmm. Because until we do this, we're going to grow. Because my fiance is the first white guy I've ever dated. Mm. Never dated a white guy before this. And ironically, we're getting married now. And I've been around his very Maine family. They're from Maine. And some of them have Trump stickers and mm. say things that is very problematic. Mm. all the time mm. and of course i could being the only person in their family now the only person of color in the family now i could jump up and say what the hell is wrong with you you're stupid blah 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 but i sit there and i'm like i gotta have a conversation with you because until you realize i see your humanity is the only way that you're going to feel comfortable and seeing my humanity and so i want us to talk about it i want us to have a get to a place where you can understand how your choices are affecting my life and like you said earlier there's the law of abundance there's enough for all of us you don't have to feel threatened that Inside the dark, we're gonna we're secretly taking everything. We're not. The light is out, and there's enough for all of us. Yes. Look, there's a house there for you. A house. There. It's exactly. the Oprah method. There's, like, there's everything for everyone. I'm like, you don't have to lose your house, but everybody else deserves a house. Exactly. You, you know don't have I mean? to lose your position, but everybody else, else deserves a position. position. Too. You don't have to have health care that is less great than the health care you have, but everybody deserves health care. It. And it's such a foreign concept, but only yeah. ways by having these conversations. Mm -hmm. So through the hill. And through these conversations, I'm hoping that I'm doing better to have people feel like, okay, we can we can do this together. That's so beautiful. Thanks. And again, it it isn't your job to do that emotional labor of educating people. But when you have a personal interaction with someone, it changes your opinion of Agreed. their circumstance. Agreed. It Agreed. it enlightens something. It it takes away that subconscious feeling of something being foreign or unknown and thus scary. Yeah. You know, I think we forget that through all these, you know, millennia of evolution, sure, we have this capacity to meditate and be spiritual and be our higher selves, but also we're these little humans with these little lizard brains and we are very tribalistic yep. in our DNA. Mm -hmm. So we have to out train that instinct yep, that we 100%. might think we're above, but we fall into when we're at our worst or we're tired or we're exhausted or we're afraid, to your point. And, and for you to say... I have done enough work that I understand this and I understand that people don't know what they don't know and that by having a conversation, we might illuminate. That is 
That is a gift you are not required to give, but I think it is amazing that you do. Thank you, love. I appreciate that. You're so cool. Thank you. You are too. You are too. We're just doing our little part. I got to tell anybody listening, because I know you hear us, we have the capacity for it. We found space in our life, you and I, to be able to do this work, to pick up this emotional labor. Someone at home, if you don't feel like you have the capacity to do this, there's other ways for you to do certain things. And I never want to feel, you know, especially because communities that are marginalized, you know, communities of color, the LGBT community, women, we feel like we always have to be the ones to put on the the clothes, you know, pick up our, you know, and do the work. It's like, why do I have to teach you? Why don't you go do the research yourself so I don't have to teach you? And so if you're out there and you don't feel like you have the emotional capacity, it's okay. Don't put any guilt on yourself. It's fine. But if you do feel like there's a part of your capacity that can teach one person educate one person, show them empathy, show them love, and in return you'll get that as well, Mm -hmm. just start there because that's how we start to make the changes and see the changes in Mm -hmm. our world. And I will say I I have to add to that and say how grateful I am. You know, I'm very lucky that I grew up in California, that I grew up in a place with a Koreatown and a little Ethiopia and with parents who are – my dad is an immigrant and my mom's mom was an immigrant. Like there's a curiosity there. That is also privilege. You know, we have these big conversations about white privilege, but the privilege of exposure, I can't overstate Mm -hmm. how grateful and how lucky I am. And there's still a lot that I don't know. And I'm lucky that I have a beautifully diverse community But I'm also very clear on which of my friends who come from historically marginalized groups want to have those conversations and which don't. And I know if I don't know something, first of all, I know where to look because I've now done enough work and asked enough questions and I still feel like I'm just at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but I know resources I can go to. And then when I have a question or or I want to make sure I understand something correctly, I know who I can ask that doesn't feel labored by that. Yep, 100%. And the only way that I've learned that is by trial and error. And I think to your point, it's it's a really beautiful thing to put yourself out there and ask. And it's a really beautiful thing to put yourself out there and, and offer if you have the capacity. And if you don't, you're you're still perfect. Amen, sister. You know, like sometimes yes. I'm like, I don't want to have conversations about harassment in the workplace today. Okay. <laughs> I just don't want it. I don't want to. And then a couple of days later, I'm like, okay, today, yeah. today, uh, today I can I do can. that. Yeah. You know, whatever it. it is. But it's it's interesting. Something I want to touch on, and I and literally I'm like, we've gone through all of my notes. I'm very excited about this. I just like, I'm a real homework. No, I love how much homework you've done. I was like, this is amazing and beautiful. (laughs) I get so excited. And you have so many great things to talk about. You, there's two things. You mentioned one, you're doing a podcast. Yes. And you wrote a children's book. I did. Can you tell us about both of those things? Because I want everyone who's listening to go and listen to your podcast and to buy your book and to read it to kids and friends and family. So my podcast is called Karamo. I'm from the school of Oprah. That's why my memoir is called Karamo. My podcast Mm -hmm. is called Karamo. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to, you gave me this name. I'm going to call everything Karamo. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So, but what I realized is that being on Queer Eye and having the training, people hit me up on my social media. And even the guys will tell you this. More than any of the other guys in the Fab Five, we'll go places and people have an emotional reaction and connection to me. People interact with me and they like, can we talk about my emotions? Can we talk about my anxiety, yes. my fears? That's all my stuff is. Mm-hmm. People don't really call me and say, let's have fun. Let's have a dance party. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 
And so I realized that people were looking for that support for me, Mm -hmm. but we only have eight episodes per season on Queer Eye. So that's only eight people plus the people around them. They get helped. So I was like, how can I do something where I can help more people? So I decided a podcast and it's a call in podcast. Apparently it's like the first of its kind, which I was like, what? People are not doing call in podcasts? Who didn't know. And so I have a 1-800 number and people can call in. And I take about 30 to 40 calls, either for individuals or with them and a family member or a boyfriend or girlfriend, Mm -hmm. and I help them solve their problem. There's no time limit. Mm -hmm. So I don't say you get four minutes and then you got to go. That's the beauty of podcasts, as you know. We can just talk and talk and then, you know, what is good, we'll edit and put in. Mm -hmm. But my intention is to help people to get the tools to have better lives. And so, yeah, that's the podcast. I wish that there was something more to it, (laughs) but it's just literally call in and I'll help you. And we have some really transformative conversations that you just, uh, it just warms my heart where I'm able to see someone grow in such a short matter of time and get it Mm -hmm. and then get the tools so they can continue on. It's what Mm -hmm. I do on Queer Eye, you know, like on my, I have four days on the show to help people to have an emotional arc and growth and now i've even perfected it more where like in 45 minutes people are crying and then they're like i get it and i'm like what in the hell karamo did you just do did you were you able to really help this stranger in kansas or new new nashville or i had i'm having people now call more internationally which is kind of amazing to me when i'm i'm like what time is it there and they're like 3 30 in the morning and i was like you waited up till 3 30 in the morning talk to me first of all thank you but like and they're like having the breakthrough. And I'm like, wow. And so, um, yeah, that's the podcast. You literally look sparkly when you talk about this. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm I'm watching you and it and it feels like you're saying that this is happening and it's happening in 45 minutes. I'm like, because you're so you're Thanks. so in it. It's like you you must be in the sharpest zone of your oh life I right am. now. I am. It's like I feel like that's what I was saying before. I I get off the calls and like I shock myself because I'm like, how did how did you just get them to have that emotional breakthrough? Like, and then we my producers are really great. We can make sure that people get you know resources because mm-hmm. I don't want to leave. I think it's very irresponsible when we leave people without again. Yes. You hear me say all the time tools or resources because yes. you got to be able to continue it on. And I'm just so excited. So the podcast going really good. Yeah. And so I'm the podcast so called Karamo. The number is one eight three three Karamo. Ooh. I know, right? Again, yes. school of Oprah. I'm not trying to confuse you. I love it. So, I can never – can I tell you something really yeah. quick? It's a total tangent. Yeah, sure. But I when I was tangent. little, I was a weird little kid. And similarly to you, like, look, I'll I'll be up at the Pride Parade all night. Like, I love fun. Yes. But people want to have deep talks with me. Yes. Like, I love to be silly and it just doesn't always happen. And now I'm kind of like, all right, I'm going to embrace what comes my way. Yeah. And same, I'm the same way in that. I'm you like, know, okay. it's like, it seeks me out for a reason. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Let's unpack stuff. Let's talk about it. And <laughs> my mom recently, I sent her photos because two weeks ago I got to see Oprah speak and Cheryl Strayed interviewed her. And like, they are two Where was of, this? this was it's amazing. This was at a documentary film festival that yeah. I go to every year. I will come Please, with info, me. Yes. Done. Like, life changer it's it is my ultimate recharge it's the place where i plug in where i learn things where i'm reminded about how to fight and what to fight for it's magic Mm. i'll give you the full rundown after this because i could talk about it for hours but cheryl interviewed oprah and they are like two of the greatest teachers of my whole life yes and i was just like sitting there bawling and sending my mom videos and she goes do you remember what 
a, like what a just wonderfully strange child you were. And I was like, where is this going? Okay. <laughs> and my mom was like, you, you, when you were little, your two favorite shows were Murphy Brown and okay. Oprah. And you used to ask me, because my mom would pick me up from school and I'd get home at 310. Yeah. And Oprah came on at three. Mm -hmm. So I was like this little seven-year-old being like, but mom, just pick me up. I'm not learning anything at school. I learn everything from Oprah. And I would beg her to pick me up early so I could be seated in front of the TV when Oprah started. Hold on. I'm having a little moment right now. I just had a – swear to God, on my life, my children, my mother and I just had a similar conversation. No. She was like, do you remember your two favorite shows as a child? And I was like, kind of, were Donahue, Phil Donahue – who trained Oprah, and I love Oprah, obviously, but I would run home and watch Phil Donahue all the time and MASH. <gasps> and both of those two shows were always about how to give back, how to mm -hmm. help, how to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. So it's, I was just having a moment right now hearing you say your two children, child shows were yes. like Oprah and, you know, I'm and like, Murphy Brown. Murphy Brown. Yeah. I'm like, what? First of all, it just shows where we are today. Anyway, I'm, it, no, no I love it. It's no a it, no, but it's a yeah. mirror moment. It's a mirror moment. I, and I realized recently because a couple years ago they put Murphy Brown back on the air, and yeah. I had a really irrational response. I was driving down Sunset, and I, I started screaming in my car, <laughs> screaming. I saw the billboard, I didn't know what to do, and I was like, wait a minute, because I went to college for the BFA theater program, yeah. and I got there, and I was like. I don't understand this. Yeah. I don't know how to stand around and talk about my craft all day. I want to tell stories. And like, I, I, you go to theater school, amazing, like amazing. But I transferred into the journalism school and started studying journalism and political science. And that's when I really started working like crazy because yeah. I had so much to say. And I think about it and I'm like, wait, did I just grow up and try to be Murphy, <laughs> Murphy Brown? Brown. <laughs> like, I just wanted to be this like badass journalist woman. And I can't tell you how often I wear a turtleneck and a blazer. And I'm like, I just want, I think I just want to be Candace Bergen. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. It's a real thing. Okay, so uh, I can't wait to see all the things that you're doing. One of which, wait, I forgot. Your children's book. Oh, yeah, the children's book. I wrote the children's book after the success of my memoir with my son because as a child, I there was a mantra I used to tell my children, I still tell them, which is you're perfectly designed. Mm. And part of me saying that to them as children is, is to remind them that there's no part of who you are authentically that is wrong because yeah. we get messages and narratives constantly that tell us that we are not okay, yeah. that there's some part of us that's wrong. And so when you can remind your child that every part of you is perfectly designed, it gives them the courage and self-esteem to be able to fight against the negativity that's going to be inadvertently coming towards them daily. And one of the other things of this is that part of their perfect design, all of our perfect design is the ability to ask for help if we need it. And so I, the book is a picture book that was written for children, but ironically, you've already started pre-sales and like we have so many adults and even adults at the publishing company that are like, I'm reading this myself because the themes in it are for children, but it's really for all of us to remember when you're in these moments at school, work, family, you are perfectly designed. There's nothing wrong with you. You gotta be able to practice daily fighting against those negative messages and believing in who you are because authentically, there's nothing wrong with you. Yes. Um, and so the oh, book comes out in the fall. I know. So the book comes out in the fall. It's called I Am Perfectly Designed. And so I'm excited for people to read it. And my son co-wrote it with me. Because they, when we decided to do it, they were like, you write a children's book. And I was like, well, first of all, I want my child to be in 
involved in the children's book. You know, like some people write children's books and they're not parents, but I am. So why would I just be selfish enough, again, going back to what we said earlier, to think that my child's experience shouldn't play into the book? It's like one of those things of like, I'm the adult, so I write the book. No, you're the kid. What would you like to hear? What would you have liked to have been told? What would you like to say? Your opinion is valid. And so he helped co-write the book. And then he also helped pick the illustrations with me. Um, and I, I'm proud to say it was a very 50-50 collaboration, which I'm so proud of him to see him flourish. And yeah, I Am Perfectly Designed comes That's out this so fall. Special. You're such a good dad. Thanks. I try. <laughs> I try. Uh, yeah. in, in wrapping, I mean, I don't want to wrap, but I don't want to keep you here forever. Yes. Uh, even though I wish I could put you in my pocket and take you home. <laughs> The Done, podcast, by the way. I mean, okay. Yes. Uh, the The podcast is called Work in Progress. Yes. Because to me, I think that, I think social media is the most beautiful place to connect, be seen, find your tribe to your point. But I also think it's tricky because it makes it look like everybody else has everything figured out. And like, we're the one person who doesn't know what's going on. Yep. And what I've learned And what I try to remind people of and I tell people all the time is that you're allowed to be both a masterpiece and a work in progress at the Mm, same time. mm. Be happy with everything you've done and set goals for more. And I know that I'm a work in progress. I'm trying to figure it out all the time. People ask me like, how'd you do it? I'm like, I don't know how to do anything. (laughs) Like, make no mistake. So I'm I'm always curious for, for the people who come in here because... Everyone who listens looks at you and goes, God, he's nailing it. And you are. And I want to celebrate the masterpiece that is you. And I'm also curious what in your life feels like you're a work in progress right now. Do you want a long list? Because I got a long list. Anything Um, you want. It could be a list. It could be one highlight. I'm going to just choose probably the biggest highlight that I've been having recently, which I would say the work in progress is being more true to mm. what my how my dreams are being redefined daily mm. cuz i get nervous sometimes especially like the success of queer eye that if i if i shift right now i'm going to somehow damage what is being created mm. and it's a very it's a scary moment because i'm like there's other things that i think i want to switch into and shift into but you know, you have people around you that are saying, you can't shift right now. This is the highlight. You have to now do this and this and this because this is where your career is going. And I'm like, but part of me is like saying, there's another dream that's coming up and flourishing. And I'm like, maybe I might want to go that way. But everyone mm-hmm. is saying no. And so for me, it's acknowledging this sort of fear-based decision and thought pattern that everyone else is having. And I'm internalizing and coming back to this place of like love-based thinking and love-based thoughts of like, no, if I decide to shift my dreams right now, it it's not going to affect me because what is for me is for me. Things mm. will be great. I don't have to live in this sort of constant fear, which many people do. You know, they have their jobs and they're like, I want to do something else, but I have to survive and I have to be here for the kids and I have to have this money. And I can't change because it will mess everything up. And I'm telling myself it's not going to mess anything up. It's just going to help me to be better and to do more greatness and mm. to feel more comfortable in who I am. And so that's the, probably the part of myself of work in progress of like reminding myself daily and practicing daily that if I shift and change because I want to for myself, it's not going to hurt my life. Mm. And that's where I'm at. I love that. Yeah. It it reminds me that nobody ever told us, but 
The reality is when we're grownups, we have to sign our own permission slips. You better preach. Is that your original? Because that is. is beautiful. What that is gorgeous. That's oh just a little that's just a little takeaway that, from you therapy. Know you know? That is yeah. gorgeous. As an adult, you have to sign your own permission slip. You have slip. to sign your own permission slip. You better preach this. And it's like listen, you and me, we love the Oprah. Yes. Yeah, so it's like the woman taught me everything I know. But it's true. It's like adult, sign your own permission slip. Yeah, because if we don't give it to ourselves, nobody else is mm. going to. Mm. And I spent a really long time waiting for somebody else to tell me I was allowed. Ugh. And like, let's not do that anymore. No more. Well, thank you for all of this. I mean, thank what a you. beautiful hang and the tools that you offered to people and the gems that you are dropping you everywhere. Too. And my God, you just <laughs> I just can't thank you enough for sharing yourself in the way that you do and thank and for you. just being in here with that smile. It's like in this moment, I'm like, bummer for everyone listening that we didn't <laughs> film this podcast because they don't get to stare at your face. Oh, you're sweet. Thank, thank you, you as well. This was awesome. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.